Welcome back, Rebels. Welcome back, Rebels. Uh, little favour to ask first off, our friend Lucy Werner, who it was one of our most listened to episodes um, recently, she has got a new book coming out called Brand Yourself that she is trying to turn into a Sunday Times bestseller. So yeah, so if you want to help her, which we all definitely do, go and pre-order her book Brand Yourself because I know those pre-order sales really help. So if you want to help her in the community, if you got some value from her episode, uh, go and pre-order that book. Yes, um, I, I did highly recommend her book Hype Yourself. Um, if Brand Yourself is anywhere near as good as Hype Yourself, it's going to be an excellent book. So please go and um, support her. Um, I, I just want everyone to know that Adam and I are not special. Um, and this is something I've been thinking about for a while, is that quite often um, when we meet people in public or we get certain DMs from people, you guys put us on a pedestal. We've certainly had people like really nervous to meet us and, and I've had it in, in the street with my street art and stuff. This is, this is not like me trying to sound cool, like, oh, I, I know, like knowing I am really special and but, but actually like trying to play it down and really humble. It's not that. What I'm trying to say here is like there is nothing super remarkable about us. Like if you listen to this podcast for long enough, you have some of us in you. That sounds dodgy, <laughs> but like not in that way, but like. But like it, it will have permeated into your brain. Like if you've listened to us long enough, a lot of the actions and behaviours that you're doing are going to be connected in some way to the things that we've sort of told you that you've learned from us, that you've learned from our guests. And of course, everything that we say to people are, are stuff that we've learned from other people and that we've learned from doing our business for 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to say that like, don't put people on pedestals. This episode you're about to listen to, we're, we're talking to like, the founder of Netflix, one of the most established, famous people in the world, like one of the hugest brands. And it's just a person like that's a person that we've managed to have a conversation with because we've done the work, because we've done two years of a podcast that's pretty fucking good. And because you guys are sharing it and telling people about it and giving us iTunes reviews, which is helping the show grow. But we just we just did a thing like we just put the work in, like we just got good at what we were doing. And and that is why these things are happening. It's not because we're we're special or we've got anything that you don't have. Like anything that we've achieved, you can yeah. achieve. I that's believe. 100%. And I think like with the podcast, that's a perfect example because there was no natural innate talent in us of like, you're great at speaking on microphones. You're great at being in front of camera. Yeah. You're great at finding questions to ask people. All of those things we were, I would say, bad at like two and a half, three years ago. <laughs> Uh, yet we just started a thing and then just kept practicing to a stage where we got good. And I think what's really interesting is when I think about how kind of our careers have both changed over the past year with kind of you moving more into your own style street art and then moving into photography is everything that we've put into place is things that we've learned on this show. It's just things that we've learned from other people along the way. And I think one thing that I always tell people like when it comes to like me interviewing or talking to people on the show you suddenly realize how everyone is just a person and how you don't put people on pedestals anymore. I feel like even now there would be very few people that I would meet that I would be like, oh my God, that's this person because we've had conversations with so many high level people now that it kind of makes you think, oh, actually they are all just people. And then when you think, okay, well, they're not like these super geniuses, like they're obviously very smart people, but there's not that much difference between you and where they are. And I think as soon as you realize that, that they are as really similar to you, that you can achieve that too, then it suddenly opens up the whole world to the possibilities of what you can actually do. Because it's like, 
if someone else has done it before, that means there's a good chance that you can do it too. Yeah, I, I think everyone is going to have their own unique path and there's only a certain amount of listening to this show, listening to other shows that are similar, listening to audiobooks, et cetera, et cetera, that is going to give you, like it's definitely useful. It's going to give you a good idea of the of of which direction to take. A lot of the DMs that we get from people are just, really they're just looking for an excuse to for us to say, yes, you should start. And as soon as they have that, then they can they can go on that journey. And it like whatever you do, it might go completely wrong. Like talking to Mark Randolph in this episode, like he's he's had tons of failed businesses. The the idea for for Netflix was was they wanted to do something they were I think they were going to do pet food originally. Um they were going to do pet food over the internet and then that changed and then they were like, Oh, what if we took a DVD and, and they took a CD and posted it to themselves? It was like, I mean we look at these these huge corporations and and companies established like Netflix and we put them on this pedestal but really that started with two dudes in a car talking about a, a better way to do video rentals i think what really intrigued me about talking to mark is the fact was his view on ideas and i think and we all have so many ideas all the time and oh this could be the best thing in the world if we ever happened and like i've heard so many people say and i've definitely said it before Oh, like you see a brand get really big, really successful. And you're like, oh, I had that idea years ago. But it's like, but the difference between you and the person who's now really successful is the fact that that person went to do it. And I remember hearing someone say as well, when it came to modern art, uh, how they walk through like somewhere like the Tate Modern and you'll see loads of pictures on the wall that look like they're scribbled by children, just some paint splattered and people are like, oh, how the hell's that selling for this amount of money? I could have done that but you didn't do it. And I think that's what you need to remind yourself. Like if you did that work consistently, found an audience for it, then you could sell it. But more often than not, we just kind of dismiss something before we actually even go and try it. Yeah. Every journey starts with the first step and, and I'm, it, it just breaks my heart that, that so many people don't take that first step. And I suppose that's what the show is all about is giving you that confidence to, to just go forward and try something. I think the most important thing is is to make to to just like just keep making throwing those ideas out and and putting them on the internet like like make ideas put them online see what happens like see what the response is if it's good people will start to pick it up like you you'll feel it you'll sense it like you'll you'll feel the momentum um if it's not good enough like it might not be good enough yet and I think that's that's with a lot of people, it's not going to be good enough yet. But that doesn't mean that it can't get good yeah. eventually. And basically, yeah, and what you just said there, it's like like Mark had a situation where they came up with the idea for Netflix before, but they only had VHS tapes at the time. And they, you couldn't post them. You couldn't send them through the post in the same way you could. So in as soon as DVDs got released, suddenly this idea I had ages ago with the current technology that's available, I can now piece them together and now it can work. So it's like you might have an idea, but unless you go and try it, unless you try and post a video through a thing and you realize it doesn't work, then by doing that, you'll realize that, oh, what are the problems here? And then you'll hopefully learn from that. And then if something comes up in the future that solves those problems, then you can go and jump on it. If not, you can just try something else because it's it's through the trying and through the experiencing things that you're really going to start to learn. And I think that that is the best way. It's like, what's the point of having an idea if there's no action attached to it? because it would just live in your head forever. And yes, you might be able to gloat to someone in the pub 20 years later that, oh, I had that idea. But it's like, but you're sat here now, they're doing whatever they want with their lives. 
yeah, action, action is everything. I think you guys are all capable of so much more than you, than you think you are. Um, and, and the beautiful thing is as well, we've got, we've got case studies now. We've got two years of this show that we can look at people who like, you guys know who you are. There's, there's listeners that have been in touch with the show since we very, very first started and they're seeing results. Like they're seeing their businesses grow, their social media accounts grow. They're, they're doing well. Like they're two years into a journey that is, and we always talk about three years being the magic number, but like two years, you've got a good idea. Like one year, you've got a good idea. Six months, you've got a good idea that that it's going to be okay because you can feel that momentum. Um, and that's that's really beautiful to see. And for those of you that haven't started yet, like now's the time, like as Adam was saying, action, like that's the key word. Action is everything. If you sit on these things, you'll, you'll always be wondering what if, if Mark hadn't invented Netflix, someone else would have done. I mean, this is the the world we live in. There's no way that on-demand TV wouldn't have become a thing. Of course it would have been, but he put the action in and, and like, it's so rickety. Like when you hear the story of Netflix, there's so many times where it could have failed or could have been bought by Blockbuster or all of these things. But if you've got a vision of that, there's something that you want to put out into the world that you ha- you do have an idea, you want to make a change, you want to disrupt an industry or or create something completely new. It can only happen if you put your first step forward. And that's what this show aims to do is, is to give you the confidence to, to just try it. Because if it fucks up, like, oh, well, try the next thing. Like, maybe it will fuck up, but like, just give it a go. Because if you don't give it a go, you're going to live with regrets. And that's the worst thing. Yeah, on the and planet. I think when you talk about the three years as well, that is three years of action. It's not three years of thinking. Because if you just think about something for three years, you've still got three years of action to put in after that. So that's why it's so important to just start as soon as possible because if you want to be successful if you want to get somewhere you want to be then you need to put the action in now so that three years comes quicker and the only way that can happen is by starting the three-year process of action yeah and just understanding that during those three years you are learning consistently um so you know our mantra of of patience plus consistency equals success and then adam added to the equation in brackets plus lifelong learning knowing that the whole time you go along, you are going to be learning the different steps of what it takes to do this. Uh, when I was on Emma Gannon's um, podcast recently, she was like, you always talk about the three-year rule, but yet in the last year, you've kind of built a sustainable career and a, a huge following on social. And that's because I've because I've learned through the past 10 years. Like I know, I, I knew the steps of what to do, how to, to bypass. Like my career is still very early on, but there's, but there's certain things that I've done that have made that process quicker. And through listening to us, you're you're going to get some of those those hacks and tips. And yeah, we will do a Instagram episode and all of that sort of stuff. But you've got to understand that that most of your learning is not going to come from this show. It's not going to come from an ebook. It's not going to come from Lucy Werner's brand new book, Brand Yourself, which is available for <laughs> pre-order now. It's going to come from learning on the job, doing action. Just go and do. I just want everyone to go and fucking do. Go and do it. But listen to this episode first with Mark Randolph. <laughs> listen to this episode first. Um, yeah, we are super hyped to have the co-founder of Netflix on the show, Mark Randolph. Um, anything is possible. Because um, you were saying to me earlier, like if you'd said to us three years ago that we'd that we'd have Mark Randolph on the show, we'd never believe it. But do you know what? I don't know. I think, I think we probably would because we always knew 
that this is just going to be a game because now that we have got Mark, that opens other doors to other guests. And eventually we know that we're going to have like big, big, big hitters on here. We're already getting big hitters like the founder of Twitch, the founder of Netflix. Unless you've got a, a, a hack, you don't get those people on your first episode of a podcast. You get it through consistently making something good, opening doors, networking, meeting new people that introduce you to other people. And that's how this stuff happens. So, so yeah, we are very proud to um, bring you this episode. I think it's really, really good. Like Mark is, is he's been there, done it, bought the t-shirt, built the Netflix and he knows what he's doing. So um, we were like for everything that we have learned in 10 years, we were just sat at the feet of a master learning from someone who's been in business for far longer than we have, who knows much more than we do. So um, we hope you guys learn as much from this episode as we did. Hi, Mark. Hi, David. How are you? Welcome to the show, dude. How are you doing? Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Adam. So, Mark, that will never work. It's something that Adam and I have definitely heard throughout our careers. Um, but it's become your Instagram handle, your podcast name, the name of your book. Why is that phrase, that will never work, why is that phrase so important to you? Well, certainly uh, on the surface, uh, that is important to me because certainly I've heard it um, a million times, just like every entrepreneur has heard it a million times. But especially when I was pitching the idea for Netflix, uh, it was this crazy idea that everyone said would never work, you know, that my investors said it would never work. You know, the employees I was trying to lure to join the company said it would never work. Even my wife said it would never work. But, you know, the deeper reason that I'm so fond of that is because, as I mentioned, it's what everybody hears. And I think by me putting that front and center, it's just a way of reminding myself that, you know, fundamentally, nobody knows anything that nobody can ever really know uh, a good idea from a bad idea. Nobody can really tell um, whether it's going to work or not. And in fact, what it's a reminder to all of us is that the only way we're going to find these things out is by actually uh, actually doing them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I You mentioned there that your, your wife was one of the people that said that'll never work. And certainly for me, when we started our first business, ended up working for sort of some of the biggest brands in the world, really successful company. But in the beginning, it wasn't so much the people that I didn't care about that were saying that'll never work that bothered me. It was people like my mum that said that'll never work about. And I really value her opinion. How do you look at someone you love who thinks that you've gone crazy and still have enough conviction to carry on with a crazy harebrained idea. Well, it's like almost any of the skills I believe for entrepreneurship is you have to practice. You have to learn that in fact, it's the case. You can't necessarily take it at face value at the beginning. And certainly the very first time that my wife said, you're crazy, that'll never work. It definitely sets you back because you're right. You do respect people. You do trust their judgment. And it's very hard when someone says that to you who you want to do what they say, or at least pay a lot of attention to what they say. But over time, you learn. And that was the case for me. I mean, it's now almost a joke between my wife and I that she's become the, the counter indicator that if she says, oh, that's ridiculous, I go, <laughs> okay, I am definitely onto something. So uh, it just, and the, listen, the most important thing though is that even though my wife always says my ideas will never work. It's the idea she doesn't believe in, but I know that she believes in me. So 
it's yeah. learning to separate that. Yeah. And I suppose as well, going back to people earlier on in their career, that's kind of where your self-belief comes from is trying something and it working and then be like, actually, I know I can do that. Because it's like if, every, if you just stopped every time someone said, oh, that's not possible, then you would just be in this situation of never trying anything new or never any, never pushing anything. And I think it's in those moments that you do find those, those little wins of like, actually, I tried that and it worked. That gives you the confidence to try again and try again. And you know, but listen, just in case people listening to this take away the message, the wrong message, which is that ignore everything everyone says. They are all wrong. That's not at all what I think I'm saying. And I think it's not at all what you're saying. Uh, yeah. There are people who have a tremendous amount of experience, um, insights, judgment, especially when you're working in a domain that you're not familiar with. And it's a really delicate skill because what you have to train yourself to do is to hear and to listen and to absorb exactly what it is that they're saying when they say that will never work. What is their objection to it? What are they saying you can't overcome this, but you don't need to accept their final judgment? Um, mm. I think it was Adam Grant who says uh, you should um, uh, argue like you're right, but listen like you're wrong. Uh, and I think that's such a great piece of advice for how you should absorb other people's information. You know, for example, when we started Netflix, um, we had zero experience in the video industry. I mean, we had the hubris to say, we're going to try and reinvent the way people rent movies, having zero experience except as a consumer in renting movies. And I wasn't going to be that stupid. Um, and I realized I needed somebody on the team who did have that deep domain expertise, who could serve in some ways as a jungle guide for me to help me navigate the, the relationships I would need um, as I began playing in that business, to help me avoid repeating the same mistakes that other people who had gone before me in trying to disrupt mm. uh, the video business. And that was a guy named Mitch Lowe. And he pr proved indispensable in helping uh, do things well. It does not mean that when Mitch said that won't work, that I said, okay, then I won't do it. But when he said that won't work, it was a signal to me I had better listen very, very carefully to what his objections are and make sure that this internal sense I have that I'll eventually figure out how to do it um, was on track. When it comes to someone else's opinion, if they're going to tell you you can't do that, it's like, have they done it before? And if it's something that's like making a bed or something really simple, and it's like, well, that's that you don't do it like that. It's, and it's because they've done it before, they've tried it, and they've been like, okay, based on all my information and my own experience, it hasn't worked. Whereas I feel like quite often when people say, that's not possible, you can't do that, they've never actually gone and done that themselves. Oh, that is certainly don't listen to the people who have never done it themselves. You know, what do they know? But I'm saying it, what, what, what comes interesting is the people who have deep category expertise uh, that you have to listen very carefully to. Uh, again, I'm not saying that you have to accept their final judgment, but you're foolish if you're not willing to listen carefully and understand exactly why each of their reasons why they think it won't work, why they're holding that belief. Um, and if you can, as you're listening, can tick through it goes, yeah, I was aware of that. I've considered that. Yeah, I thought about that one. Go, oh, gosh, I hadn't even occurred to me 
doesn't mean you don't go ahead with what you want to do, but it means you know have something new you have to say is my mental model for how I'm going to proceed still appropriate now that I have a deeper understanding of the domain. I, think, I mean, I we're, 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 making this we... we're making this sound more complicated than it really is. Because <laughs> it really is not like I'm going back and having big whiteboards and pages of research. I'm, I'm a guy who likes to make all their mistakes in public. So I'm, I'll plunge into anything. What it might affect is not necessarily that I'm going to go back and modify paragraph 711 in my 600 page business plan, because there is no 600 page business plan. It just means it's one more little thing I file away as I'm intuitively and blindly kind of trying something. And it might also impact the scale upon which I try it. If I, something someone has told me makes me a little bit less certain that the path I'm about to embark on is going to work, I might scale back the size and the complexity of the test. So so when we talk about Netflix, the business that's always mentioned alongside it is Blockbuster. And Blockbuster is is shown as this was the dinosaur that couldn't see the comet hurtling towards it and and that's why it went extinct. Because Blockbuster had no ability or desire to change with with what was obviously a, a changing marketplace. But Netflix has had several different iterations were there times where you were kind of on the winning track but you could see the trouble coming and knew, like how, like how did you work out that it was time to pivot from something that was working whereas blockbuster couldn't do that most of the time when companies face that problem uh, it's not because they don't see it it's not because they don't understand. It's not because they're caught unaware or they're blindsided in some way. Uh, most large companies, and I'll put Blockbuster in the exact same category, are run by very intelligent, capable people. Uh, yeah. They're trapped by something else. I mean, they're trapped by their momentum. They're trapped by their established lines of business. They're trapped by the fact that the, the reality that be, ha, the direction they see that they need to go, not just is something that they haven't thought of, but they've thought of it, but they go, going in that direction is going to impact in a negative way my current line of business. And that's what screws them up. Uh, it's a courage thing in some ways, uh, and may not even be a personal courage thing. It may be an institutional courage thing. So again, let's just take a specific examples. Uh, so from Netflix's case at the very beginning, uh, and by the way, just to, for context here, uh, a lot of people perhaps listening to the podcast are scratching their heads, but they should realize that when Netflix started back in 1998, uh, there was no streaming video like there is now, especially in the UK and around the world. Uh, if you wanted a video, uh, we mailed it to you on a DVD. So it was a DVD by mail business for the first nine years, which is why Blockbuster, the huge global video rental store company, uh, was this primary competitor. But at the very beginning, in those first six months of Netflix, we were trying to figure out how to rent movies by mail. But as an afterthought, we were also selling movies. And it was an interesting dynamic because about a month in, all of a sudden, we appeared to be having a great success, which is that we were about to have a $100,000 month. So this million dollar run rate, which was 
astronomical uh, to me. But the problem is that about 98% of that was coming from selling DVDs, uh, about 2% from actually renting them. Uh, and the reason this was kind of this good news, bad news thing, because the good news, of course, we had customer flow, we could experiment, we had revenue. The bad news was that video sales is a commodities business. Uh, and at the time, Amazon wasn't was only selling books, if you can imagine a time like that. But we knew they were eventually going to be selling uh, DVDs too. And then the margins would get crushed and we'd be out of business. But here's the problem. It wasn't just going, well, which one should we do? The problem is that doing both of them at the same time was making it less likely we'd be successful with either of them. Uh, it was very confusing to customers describing what we did. It was very complicated for us designing a checkout process where some of the movies you wanted to rent, some you wanted to buy. Uh, our metrics were confusing because we were always trying to interpret what the numbers really meant when it was a splendid model. Inventory management was tricky. Finance was tricky. So we realized that everything's being made more difficult by us trying to do two things at once. We have to focus on one of them. Um, and we decided it was better to take this long shot at getting rental right than it was to ride the 98% revenue thing for a while and eventually have it out of business. And so we just walked away in a single day from 98% of our revenue so we could focus entirely on video rental. Um, and we did it then, now we did it again, we did it again. We've always been willing to surrender the present in exchange for the future. Now let's take a look at what Blockbuster did. They got to a situation and they began to see Netflix having some success and said, wow, this video rental thing by mail is actually could be an interesting business. But the flaw with the mistake, if there was a mistake, was that they said, well, wow, 98% of our business, 99% of our business is stores. Um, and so why would we possibly want to take our very, very best engineers? Why would we want to take our very, very most talented uh, executives and put them on a business which, if it crushes it, would represent a tenth of 1% of our business? That's crazy. But we should do it. And so they put their C team um, on the project who would mess it up. Uh, and by the time they finally said, we better take this seriously, it was their fourth run at it. Uh, but by then it was too wow. late because we were too strong. Uh, and this happens all the time. Let me give you one more example. I'm sorry, you got me on a run here. I do a lot of work Go actually with large companies um, who are all trying to say, we need to be more innovative. We need to turn more quickly. And again, they see it coming. And here, this is a classic example. This is a, co a company that I worked with was a, um, a manufacturing company. It manufactured a product and it sold it through multi-level distribution. So it sold it into distrib distributors, the distributors sold it to stores, the stores sold it to consumers. And of course the price gets stepped on at every stage. So it gets marked up every time, um, but they were killing it. You know, They had 90 plus percent market share for their particular product. And then the inevitable happened is someone came up with a very, very, very similar product and began a model where they sold direct to consumers. And because they sold direct to consumers, they were priced at about 50% of what the big manufacturer was. And the big manufacturing exec is a smart person. You know, and she, she says, okay, um, we can't let this happen. We're gonna start a division to sell direct ourselves and we can use our 
brand power and our marketing muscle and our cash position, and we can dominate that side of the business as well. Until the distributors get wind of it and go, well, what, what you're going to compete with us? Well, screw that. You can cancel my orders. And she goes, no, 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 no. And then, of course, the, her top performing salesperson comes in, goes, what, you're trying to make my job harder? Well, screw you. I'm, I'm out of here. Goes, no, 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 don't quit. And, of course, all those plans to launch the direct consumer business are abandoned. Uh, and even if they had the courage and said, we're going to do it, well, all of a sudden, distributor revenue drops uh, and they miss their quarter. And Wall Street, if they're a public company, punishes them. In other words, it's not like the person doesn't see it coming. It's that the consequences mm -hmm. of what you sometimes have to do to disrupt your business are really, really challenging. And most companies don't have the courage or the strength to do that. And it's a wonderful thing for people like myself and the people that I work with mostly who are the early stage entrepreneurs, because it gives you these opportunities to go after these big entrenched competitors who lack the strength, the courage, or the will to do something they clearly mm -hmm. see coming. But I promise them if they lack the will or the courage to disrupt themselves, well, sign me up. I'm happy to disrupt your business for you. I think that's really interesting. So I almost feel like <clears throat> what most businesses need is some form of like department or person or something that's always future thinking because then it almost seems like we're not building a structure a solid thing that then something's going to come in and try and interrupt that as a company we've got the mindset of we're always going to be evolving there's always going to be some level of innovation or something that's happening and I think if it is more of a consistent part of a business it's less likely that it's going to scare everyone because people are used to a constant level of change rather than sticking in one place and then it all kind of falling down. Well, yes, but you, of course, forget about the corporate immune system. Uh, and as soon as the larger organism gets wind of this crazy little startup inside of itself, it immediately dispatches all the corporate white blood cells and they kill it. <laughs> uh, because the, the, the startup is doing things which in some ways the startup inside the company your little skunk works your little side project uh, is anathema to the bigger organization because they're they're doing things half-assed they're making mistakes uh they're, they're getting things wrong they're trying things that don't work which is the definition of what you have to do to try and make something which hasn't been done before work but of course you have people all throughout the company we're going, wait a minute, you didn't approve this. You didn't run this open, you didn't get this through. Wait a minute, this is violating this principle that we never want a single customer of ours to be disappointed. Wait, you're going to discontinue that feature? We can't do that. Our, our reputation is on having continuity and main. I mean, they come up with a million reasons. And eventually, if you do have a visionary person who will, will always say, won't take, that will never work for an answer, they're not going to put up with that bullshit. They're... Uh, they're out of there. The only thing that truly works is to take it out of the business entirely, is to basically say, if you, for a larger company, you're trying to stimulate innovation within your own business, uh, you have to get it out of the building. You've got to get it out of the process. It's got to be named something different. Um, and then if and when it begins to come up with something that actually resonates, that you can now say, this is something valuable. Yes, then you can perhaps bring it in. Then you can make it a wholly owned subsidiary, whatever you need to do. Mm. Really hard to do it within the walls. 
Yeah, that reminds me of, um, I think it's there's a the telecoms company over here in the UK, like BT bought a company called EE, which are kind of like one of its biggest competitors. But those two brands still exist separately, almost as a way to compete against each other. And I know people who have worked in both of them. And there is complete competition between those two businesses, despite the fact they're actually owned by the same people. So I suppose that's a, a route that you could take that then. But yeah, absolutely. And there's different models for how corporations manage this. You know, some of them, you know, look at Amazon, for example. Uh, Amazon is everything is Amazon this, Amazon that, Amazon this. But you look at maybe, you know, Mars, the giant uh, package goods conglomerate. Yeah. You, you never even separate on the some of the candies, but you never actually know all these brands that Mars actually owns. Oh, and, and, yeah. runs. Mm-hmm. and they, they just have a different model for it. And their challenge is the opposite one, which is how do you get the co- cooperation between the brands? But, but there's, there's no model is perfect. But I tend to follow more like the Mars model where they say, we're going to uh, acquire a brand after they've established some success. We're going to leave them alone and not muck around with what has made them successful in the first place, even if there's competition between other brands in our portfolio. So let's break this down to kind of like that's obviously corporate level. If we took this down to startup size level of like smaller teams or individuals possibly, how much time do you reckon should be put into just developing the product that you have compared to trying new things outside and trying to develop new products as add-ons? There's two ways for me to go with that because there's two conflicting principles at work here. Uh, One is the principle of focus. Um, And so if you have something you're working on, no, you should never work on anything else. It's hard enough getting one thing right. Um, And to think that you can do multiple things simultaneously um, is uh, is suicide. And I think it's one of the easily top three or four things that does sink every single startup is when they get too many things they're trying to do simultaneously. It is the skill of triage, of recognizing that of the hundred things that are broken, all the things that are on fire, in reality, there's really only one or two of them that are important. Some of them are so bad that there's going to they're, they're, you can't fix them. Some of the things that they're fine as they are, it's there's a, only a handful that if you focus on them, it'll make the difference to the business. So when I hear someone say, do I do these other things? Do I pursue this other alternative? I go, absolutely not. Focus is the key. But the reason I was a little confused by the question is if the thing you're working on isn't working, then for God's sake, abandon it immediately. Don't try and limp it along while you're looking for the next thing. It's the same focus thing. Begin immediately saying, what's next? Because the other big problem that faces entrepreneurs is they hold on to their ideas for too long. Their idea is precious. Oh, this thing is great. Uh, And then they begin this long search for some problem that they can throw their idea against. Uh, And you can't. You've got to be willing to let go the second you recognize that your idea is not a good one, which usually is about a second. Uh, it's this constant hopping from stone to stone, trying to find one large enough to stand on. But those are two different phases of a startup. I mean, there's that earlier stage where you're struggling to find this repeatable and scalable business model. And that could require going through hundreds of iterations of what your business is. 
And once you find the repeatable, scalable business model, there's a total shift in your thinking because now it is focus. Now it's saying, okay, blinders on, this thing's working. We've got to put every bit of attention we can into focusing on this. I don't want to hear about expanding internationally. I don't want to hear about coming out with a line of clothing with our brand on it. I don't want to hear anything except how are we going to serve our customers well doing this one particular thing we finally realize that people want. I was listening to an interview the other day. I can't remember who it was with. It might have been Mark Cuban, but he was saying that if someone makes him sign an NDA, then he just walks out of the room. Um, and his reason being is that that there are so many ideas and whatever idea it is that you're getting him to sign an NDA for, he's probably already had that idea himself. And the ideas are nothing. It's the action behind the idea that is the most important thing. Yeah, I've been that way for a long time. I, and pretty much no one really does NDAs anymore in Silicon Valley where uh, it's just a stupid, a stupid thing. What are you trying to keep secret? Uh, and again, I'm the same way. If someone does say you want this on the NDA, I go, no. If you want to talk to me, talk to me. If you don't trust, <laughs> if you don't trust me, you shouldn't talk to me either. I'm fine. Yeah, so, brilliant. but but the, the the principle is completely sound, which is that there's no such thing as an original idea. There's no such thing as a good idea. I mean, every idea is a bad idea. Uh, the idea counts for shit. The idea is the starting point. Uh, what's important is that process of colliding your original idea with reality uh, and seeing what happens. You know, it's like what they do in, you know, with the, the Halon super colliders is they spend billions of dollars to smash two atoms together to see what happens when they do it. And fortunately in the startup world, we can collide our idea with reality much more quickly, much more cheaply, much more easily. Uh, and the more time you spend building out this idea, uh, the more time you're wasting. Because I promise, whatever your idea is, it sucks. Uh, but that's fine. They all suck. All my ideas sucked. The idea for Netflix sucked. Uh, the only way you get to something that actually works is by going, fine, it's a starting point. Let's, uh, let's see what happens when I collide this idea with the customer. In fact, the real creativity these days for entrepreneurs. The real skill is not, oh, he's a genius ideas. I could care less. The skill is that they can quickly and cheaply and easily figure out ways to try them. And that does require a very high degree of creativity and cleverness. Yeah. That makes me think about uh, something that happened to Adam and I. So when we first started our business, we opened up a little gallery in a place called Cheshire Street. And on the surface, you walk down Cheshire Street and you would look at all of these different businesses and you would see shops available and you would think, well, if I come and I set up my shop in Cheshire Street, I will be a millionaire. Well, not a millionaire, but I'll be doing really well. And we would see all of these businesses plowing their life savings into setting up in these shops and then six months later, grand opening, grand closing, and they'd, they'd be gone. And no one ever knocked on the door and said what's footfall like on Cheshire Street um, and we would have said to them well it's absolutely dead apart from on a Saturday and our our business like this gallery front is a nice to have but our business is run on the internet that's how we're able to survive and that's why we've got this unit but no one ever did that and it was so heartbreaking to see these shops that were lasting sometimes two months, sometimes six months, but 
routinely going out of business and it was all down to that like you said like not not trying not being safe just going all in on their idea and and without that that test phase that you were talking about where they could have avoided heartbreak it's crazy to think that for example high foot traffic will save me uh, and in fact, and then you get doubly went smacked when it's not even high foot traffic. But even on a store with very high foot traffic, if you're right, it, it's designed. Those streets are designed for taking something which is already successful and then making it even more successful. They're the only ones who can afford the rent in places like that. That's why you've got to start your business in low traffic areas. And I don't just mean in retail, low traffic areas of the internet, low traffic areas. You've got to test it with a cardboard box. Uh, uh, standing outside of the mall. And if you can sell things there, it'll, yes, be accelerated as you move into a better and better environment. But if you can't sell things there, then what makes you think that, oh, if only I was on Cheshire Street, it would work. That is so interesting because the day one of our business, we stood on a high street drawing, drawing on a canvas and it was we we printed out some business cards. So our our business is like an art art based mural company. We printed out some business cards, and then we thought, well, we've got no one to give these business cards to. Like now we've got the business cards. What do we do? So we yeah we just went and stood in the high street with a canvas in the cold. We were out there for seven or eight hours handed out maybe a hundred different business cards to different people had all of these conversations and from that we got our very first job and our whole business was built on that foundation of one job from one opportunity in the street drawing on a canvas it's crazy again that's the quick cheap and easy way to collide your idea with reality and i encourage people all the time to stop getting hung up on all the trappings when fundamentally you, there's a very narrow niche. I mean, and listen, I'll give you a really specific example um, of, I, I've heard every single excuse, every, I mean, all 6,920 of them for why <laughs> I can't start my business right now. Um, and it's always like, oh, I need to raise money. Oh, I need yeah. to find my technical co-founder. Oh, I need to quit my job. Oh, I need to drop out of school. Oh, I need, I mean, the list goes on forever. And I'll give you a specific example. So there was this young woman that I worked with a number of years ago who um, had an idea. She was in college and university. Uh, and she had this idea for doing peer-to-peer -peer clothing sharing. You know, basically, I have stuff in my closet that I don't always wear. I know other people do. Maybe we could figure out some way where we can all borrow each other's clothes. I go, okay, maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. Who knows? But she was coming to me and saying, I'm stuck. Like, how do I raise money? And how do I get, how do I build my app to make this work? And should I quit school? And I'm going, oh, God, stop, 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 stop. I go, let's start right now and figure out how you can quickly and easily and cheaply collide this idea. So I go, do you have a piece of paper? She goes, yes, I'm a college student. I have a piece of paper. I go, okay. Do you have a magic marker, a marker? She goes, yes, I have a marker. I go, okay, take the piece of paper and write on it. Do you want to borrow my clothes? Knock. And I want you to tape that to the outside of your dormitory door. And we're going to find out tonight, whether your idea is a good one or not. Because if nobody knocks, well, you've learned something very important. But let's say someone does knock. Well, that's fantastic. You've established that the first part of your idea actually might work. Now you're going to start learning something else. You're going to find out when they come in and begin poking around in your closet, whether there's problems with fit or with style. 
Uh, and now let's say that works, that someone does match up. Now you're going to learn another thing. You're going to find out how you feel when your favorite blouse comes back stained or torn, or when you know after beginning incurring dry cleaning charges each time you do a swap. You're going to begin learning all these things immediately, and you're going to do it for the cost of a piece of paper, a magic marker, and some time. Now, is this a repeatable, scalable business? Absolutely not. If it takes off, you'll go out of your mind. You're going to be keeping track of things on three by five cards and calling to track things down and wondering where that one was. And you're going to quickly exceed your capacity to do it by yourself, but that's fine because you're going to learn all the important fundamentals of the business from doing it in this half-assed way. But those fundamentals are what allow you to do things like raise money. Because when you go and pitch to an investor, you're not going in and saying, imagine if you will. You're going and saying, look at what I've determined in these six months I've been running this out of my dorm room. Here's the average revenue per customer. Here's the lifetime value. Here's the churn rate. Here's the acquisition cost. Um, and those are the things that are investable. You're going to be showing your idea to an engineer friend who you want to help you build the app. And rather than saying, build my idea for me, which doesn't go over well, you're going to go, look what I'm doing. Look, how I'm going out of my mind doing it in three by five cards. And I guarantee that he or she will lean over and go, oh, that's really cool. You know, what we could do is we could, they'll get drawn into the excitement of it. Mm -hmm. and, you, and this person did all of that with a piece of paper and a magic marker and some time. And it's the equivalent of you guys standing on high street doing it. I, I was in the direct marketing business for like 10 years before I actually came out to California to uh, find my fortune, as they say. Uh, but I was in the direct response business. So I did direct mail, I did catalogs, I did magazine circulation, and I did uh, direct response television, the infomercial. And people laugh at infomercials, um, but they are super highly crafted. And when you see someone on TV pitching, uh, you know, the Popeil pocket fisherman or the Ginzu knives or any of that garbage, what you don't realize is that person spent minimum three to four months doing a mall tour, pitching out of a kiosk in the mall and learning over hundreds, if not thousands of pitches, what were the key hook points for selling that product. And each one of those was a test where they collided their idea with reality, saw how customers responded. What happens when I say, but wait, there's more that they actually respond rather than saying, buy now, and they walk away. That's how you start something. That's what colliding your idea with reality is. It's the key fundamental tenet of if you have an idea in your head, it's not just business. It doesn't need to be, I'm going to start a business. Whatever your aspiration was, I'm living out in the country, I'd love to get an apartment in town. Um, I'd love to figure out some way to do this club. I'd love to figure out some way to start blogging. I'd stop dreaming about how your blog is going to be this 2 million and how much money you'll make from the advertising when it happens. Oh, I want to be a TikTok superstar, but just imagine when I have a million followers. So I got to figure out what the clever thing is. And you spend six months, screw it. Tomorrow, film something. Today, film something. Put it up there. Have 10 followers for three weeks. Have 15 followers for the next three weeks. 
Every single person who became big on TikTok or became big on Cheshire Street or became big in direct marketing infomercials or became a successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur started the same way with an idea where they stopped thinking and they did something about it. So often, one of like the biggest questions that we get from like creatives is like, when should I monetize? If I've been doing this craft for so long, like, when should you monetize? And I think it's just the same as the sticking the thing on the door. It's basically you put it out there to say that this exists and people will come to you when it's time to do that. It's like you don't, ha don't just spend weeks and months building this website and then be like, cool, I've got this product that works really well. If no one's ever used it before, it's like just see if people want it first and then work out the best way to service them. Well, you know, there's, there's an expression and they go, yeah, I, I, they, you can't give it away. It's so bad. So you got to start by giving it away and see if people want it and take it. And then you begin inching your way up. Go, will they pay for it? And, and yeah, it, it absolutely, everything starts with a, um, a first step. Uh, and that's the courage of being an innovator. And, and listen, I'm, I get it. This is not like uh, myself or even you guys. Not that the three of us have some magic talent where we're not scared. Everyone's scared. It's human nature to not want to fail. It's human nature to not make an ass of yourself. No one wants to go out on a limb. Uh, that's why I'm saying start small because you'll learn that first time you do something that makes you very uncomfortable, that once you do it, well, what do you know? The sky didn't fall. The world didn't collapse. I, it wasn't a disaster. It wasn't that bad. And you'll take a little bit bigger risk next time. Um, it's like, you know, I don't know whether you guys speak a second language, probably more likely than most Americans. But to learn a second language, it's a prerequisite that you sound like a complete ass. You have to be a 40-year-old businessman walking into a coffee shop and sounding like you're in second grade when you ask for something. Uh, but if you aren't willing to open your mouth because you're afraid of looking foolish, you will never learn the language. Um, and the same thing goes, I believe, for almost anything. You've got to be willing to take that first step and recognize this might not work. And boy, it's going to be terrible. Everyone's going to laugh at me. And wow, no one, no one even knew. Okay, I'll do it again. Don't, don't try and become a simultaneous translator at the UN your first time out. Go to the coffee shop and try and order something. When it comes to sales, that's something that creatives often like really struggle with. Um, and I, I mean, it's, it's something that we talk about on the show quite a lot because it's an essential part of what, like of needing to survive because you have to get, actually get people to buy your product. Um, what are your thoughts on someone, like what would your advice be on so, for someone who is reluctant to, to sell, who's reluctant to talk enough about the, the benefits of what they do? Um, for someone to want to buy it because they say, oh, I feel, I feel icky if I'm trying to sell something. Yeah, it would be trite to say, get over it or something. Cause I know that that's not helpful at all. Um, uh, obviously the best way is to, is to start and to try, but if not, it's why partnerships are so powerful is that we all have different sets of skills and if you can be in a partnership with somebody who is different than you, um, you very quickly begin to recognize what each of you do. I mean, certainly uh, almost 
thinking back without except I did seven and seven startups and none of them were me. Uh, all of them were mm-hmm. groups of people and teams. And part of your role as a leader is to recognize the skills um, of each of the people on your team and ensure that you've given them the right things to work on. And uh, that's certainly a great way. Certainly, you know, even Netflix, you know, Reed Hastings and I, who's the current uh, CEO, my co-founder, uh, completely different people. You know, I'm very much the extrovert. I'm very much creative. I'm very much empathetic. He's very much uh, introverted, uh, analytical, rational. Um, and it's a really good combination because I think left to our own devices, uh, we wouldn't, wouldn't have worked the same way. It's that combination mm-hmm. of things. So that would perhaps be the advice to someone who uh, hates to sell. Once you say, give it a shot and it's not so bad, but listen, I get it. Some people hate that and uh, that's fine. Partnership could be a great way to go. That's really interesting because like in researching you, I kind of heard your metaphor about kind of like riding downhill on a bike and how you kind of have to just focus basically forward all the time. And I love an analogy. So I was like, hmm, that's really interesting. I was like, oh, but in a team, you obviously can't have one person on the bike, but in a car, you've got one person who's driving, concentrating on the road. And if you think of like a rally or something, there's a passenger next to them who's giving the navigations, who's kind of telling them where to go. And also as you're driving, it's like that person's going to be focused full forward but it allows the passenger to actually look around and see what else is out there. And I think if it was just one person, you're never going to get the same success as having the two people or three people or a team that can all build together to work in the same direction. But yeah, what other people can't do, the other people can fulfill. You can have that one. He's, he's improved on your analogy there. That's our gift to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, actually, the rally is probably a better example. I mean, because the riding the bike downhill is, is, is kind of pointing out the fact of how hard it is to do both those at the same time, because you yeah. have to periodically look up and see what's a couple hundred yards ahead of you while simultaneously looking what's one yard in, uh, in front of you. It's, it's, it's skill. And ha- that's why it's such a more stable configuration. And this is, again, this is not for necessarily every idea you want to make real, but certainly for the big leagues, you know, when you're actually starting businesses, which have an economic expectation from them, that a more stable configuration is multiple founders, Uh, you know, partly because you can take turns looking at the road and looking up and navigating, but also because maybe even in a rally, it's a, it's a long trip. Uh, it's nice to have somebody there uh, for company. There's someone who understands what we're going through. You can talk to about it. Maybe that analogy breaks down a bit there. So I'm going to abandon that one pretty quickly. But <laughs> there's a lot of advantages to doing this sort of work with somebody else. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, my, my sample size is very small. You know, it's, it's seven. Um, but certainly with all the other hundreds of other companies that I've worked with and the scores of entrepreneurs that I've mentored um, over and over and over again, I've seen that the best, uh, best and most stable way to do this is to have someone else that has your back. One of my favorite quotes from you is something that I really resonate with. And I think Adam will as well. Um, you said the best times were the hardest. But I must say that's always in retrospect. <laughs> so- yep. 100%. Yeah. But uh, it is, there is something to be said for the intensity 
of being in crisis, especially when you're part of a team, when all hands are on deck, when everyone is fully awake and aware and alert, when you're doing everything you can to save the ship. Um, it's terrifying. It's horrifying. But it's true that when I now look back uh, over my path at Netflix or any of the other startups I've been a part of, the things that I remember and remember most fondly were those times where when we were in deep shit and it's like, how are we going to get out of this? That's really what forces upon you uh, to use all the skills you have as an entrepreneur. I'm getting a bit emotional because I'm like thinking back to mine and Adam and our business partner, Yona, our, our struggles and uh, like times that we've been through like that. Yeah, it's it's um, and it's funny that it would push that button for me when you were talking through that, because as soon as you said it, it just took me to those situations. It's it's um, yeah, it's a special place, isn't it? And it's it's so it's so in, ingrained in your brain that it it's yeah, that that's one of the the something that gives it that all of that um, energy. It's just there, isn't it? It's almost like um, when you think of like, say, Super Bowl as an example, where you've got two teams playing against each other. They've come to the end of the game and they've got no energy left because they've put absolutely everything into win that. Yet that team that wins just finds this huge amount of energy kind of like kick back into them to be able to celebrate and jump around. And it's suddenly like you've gone from players who are exhausted to people who've got so much extra life. And I almost feel like it's that little thing that kind of like that you don't get unless you go for a real struggle to be able to get that little rush of that little extra something. Yeah, it's, it's, tr it's very, very true. Being forced to dig deep um, does something to us as humans. Uh, it does. It makes you. It makes you alive. I mean, I think it's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to uh, all the outdoor things I do. You know, the climbing and the backcountry skiing and the mountain biking and the surfing is that you have these complete moments of in, of in the present intensity uh, with risk. Uh, with the sense that if I miss this up, I'm going to get hurt. Um, and I guess you're kind of looking for those little doses. And, you know, well, I didn't even really occur to this. Maybe this is what uh, I'm tapping into by being so drawn to being an entrepreneur is wanting to put myself in these situations where I'm going to do something hard. I suppose I say, isn't it? It's like in life, if you can find joy from putting yourself in situations that create fear, create, well, they might not be perfect just leave you with so much bigger reward in the end i suppose it comes back to that idea earlier of do i kind of take the short-term win with just kind of staying and selling dvds or do we gamble for that high win in the future and yeah it's just gonna the end result by actually putting that in is so much more adam wonderful way of bringing that right back nice nice uh, reflective call back to that original thing you're, you're <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's, it, it is so much um, what drives you in your risk-taking. Uh, and I mean, I, I'm now talking about the business risk-taking of saying, hey, let's walk away from what's going to be, you know, we'll get a couple of years of being the best sellers of DVDs, but eventually it's not going to be interesting. Let's push all the chips on. Let's just see if we can make this crazy rental by mail work. Um, it's, you're just drawn to taking the risk and, uh, it's such an interesting, yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't really necessarily occurred to me at how those two things tied together before. Mark, what is success to you? I got a couple of definitions for it. 
And the thing is, I, I will count myself as being a successful person, but probably not in the way that you or most people would imagine. I mean, I've had, certainly I've had business success. You know, I, did, like I said, I did seven, seven companies and two of them were mega hits, you know, multi-billion dollar market cap companies. But that's not, that's not what I think back on when I go, God, I've, I'm happy with what's, what I've done. Because I, from the very beginning, was never motivated by that. I didn't become an entrepreneur because I wanted to make money or because I wanted to be well-known or go to parties or pitch or any of the stuff that now has become glorified as to what people think entrepreneurs do or what they think are the attractions of being an entrepreneur. I was drawn to it 40 years ago because I really liked solving hard problems. And uh, I learned this incredibly interesting lesson, you know, in my late twenties, early thirties, which is I learned these two critical things about myself. I learned what I was good at and I learned what I liked. Um, and I was lucky that they were both the same thing, which is these early stage company things that I love that experience of doing something that hasn't been done before. I love doing it as a team. I love sitting around the table with the really smart people solving these really hard problems. And so to one degree, I've been successful because I get to do that. I get to spend my life for the most part doing the thing that I love doing and that I'm immodestly, I'm pretty good at. And if you've constructed a life where you can spend your time doing those two things, that's success. But I have a different other deeper definition here, which is I also learned something in my late twenties, which is that I had to have a balanced life. I was not fulfilled adequately by, um, just business stuff, that I had these other things that were important to me too. One of them is the aforementioned outdoor stuff. I mean, I love doing those trips and I'm unlucky in that the things that makes me whole that way are not the kind of things you can squeeze in between an 11 o'clock phone call and a two o'clock meeting. They require taking days at a time and traveling to godforsaken places of the earth to do these amazing things. So I'd have to work at constructing a life where I could do entrepreneurship, which is a seven by 24 business and get outdoors. But there was also this third piece, which is that I, you know, I met the woman who had become, who is now my wife uh, when I was 23 uh, before I figured any of these things out. And I'm lucky that I recognized that if my relationship with my wife was going to be the thing that I paid attention to after I'd done everything else, that she got the leftover time, that that was certainly not going to be the fundamental underpinnings of a long-term strong relationship. And I realized that I had to build this life where I could do all three things, where I could be an entrepreneur, build successful businesses, enjoy those things I loved so much, and get out and bike and climb and surf, kayak, and have a relationship with my uh, my wife, my partner, and have, I have three kids, have them growing up knowing me, and for the most part, I think, liking me. Um, and if I look back, I'm, I'm 63 now, so I've been doing this for a long time. That is the thing that I'm proud of. That's what I consider the success, is that I have been able to actually craft this life where I can make all, I made all three of those things happen. I'm certainly super proud of the success I had with Netflix, Super proud of the success I had with Looker. Super proud of the team 
that we built and the semi-success we had with the other startups. But I'm mostly proud of, and the biggest success is that I did those things while I was able to have that relationship with my wife and my family and be able to get outdoors uh, every so often to enjoy that part of my life too. And have you got any advice of how to do that? Because I think when you're starting a business, especially in those early days, it is all consuming and it's so hard to actually, I imagine you've been through it and that's why you're so proud that you've come out the other side of it. Do you have any tips or advice on how to try and stay balanced whilst in amongst everything? I do, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I'll give you uh, two quick things. One is a little bit of a story. But uh, the first piece is that if you don't have a pretty clear idea about what you want, uh, the odds of you getting it are very small. Um, and so if it is important to you to have a life of balance, to have a life where you have other things besides this core focus of your business, if you don't make that a priority, uh, it won't happen. Again, life is not something you squeeze in around the edges while you're doing something else. You have to design it and it takes a lot of work. I mean, you really do have to plan your time and say, it's so important to me. How am I going to make this work where I first block out the time with my family or block out the time to get out of the office? But I'll give you the real trick that I found to making that happen. It's kind of a strange one. And I actually, I learned this in Europe. Um, I, lived in, I lived in Paris for maybe a year and a half, almost two years early in my career, working for a big multinational software company. And we had offices in the UK, we had offices in Italy, we had offices in Scandinavia, we had offices in Germany, pretty much every country in Europe. And my job was visiting those offices frequently which meant I was flying four days a week, sometimes five days a week, doing day trips from Paris to London, Paris to Milan, Paris to Frankfurt, whatever the case was. So I give you that background to say that I flew a lot and I had traffic issues. I had oversleep issues. I ended up running for planes a lot where you're dashing madly down the concourse, scrambling to try and get to your plane on time so you can get home for dinner or at least get home to be in your own bed that night. Um, and I learned something really interesting, which is I learned that it was pointless to run for a plane because almost all the time you run for a plane, 49% of the time, you're going to miss it anyway. You come full tilt, screeching up to the gate and you can see the plane taxiing off down the runway. Or the other 50% of the time, you come running up and the doors are open and you go, thank God, and you get in your seat and you wait and you wait and you wait and you would have made it. <laughs> if you had limped to the uh, gate, you would have made it. 1% of the time, does it actually make the difference between making or uh, not making the plane? And I vowed then and there, I'm never going to run for a plane again. And I haven't ever run for a plane again. But it's, there's an analogy here, of course, as you probably picked up, which is that so many of the things we do in business are running for the plane. Uh, how many times in my 20s, I was up there at two o'clock in the morning, uh, finessing some presentation. I'm working overtime, trying to get things right. I'm reviewing everyone's work because I could perhaps make it a teeny, teeny bit better. But all of that was running for a plane. 
you don't get the deal at three o'clock in the morning, the day before the pitch, you get the deal two weeks earlier when you had actually laid out things clearly and organized your time and been net dialed in, you know, you don't lose those things at the last minute. So how does this tie back? It's because when you're trying to construct this life, you have to realize that you don't need to do everything. That if you can get the big pieces right, you, the world will not fall apart when you leave work at 5 p.m. every Tuesday, as I did, to have a date night with my, life, with my wife. The world will not collapse. Your build, business will not fold when you have empowered your teams that you can say, I'm leaving at Thursday because I'm going to be uh, doing a three-day climbing trip in the Tetons and I'll be back on Tuesday. Um, that's a critical thing. You do not need to be a seven by 24 maniac if you're smart about it, if you set that as an objective and if you do a fair amount of planning. Yeah, that reminds me of, um, I'm uh, reading a book of by Derek Sivers um, relatively recently. And I think what he was talking about in that is he would time himself every time he rode his mountain bike around this certain track and of this certain like loop around where he lived. And he would absolutely kind of put his head down, go absolutely full throttle, try his hardest, be absolutely exhausted by the time he got there. And one day he thought, actually, let's just take this easy. I'm just going to not, just going to, I'm going to enjoy the trip. And timed himself again. And he was like, hold on, that was only like 10 seconds different or something. It's a really nominal amount of time. And he was like, one of these things he genuinely really enjoyed. And the other thing was just absolute hell putting himself through. Yet the time difference was so in, insignificant that actually he's just like, take, take the pedal off a little bit, enjoy the ride. And you'll find actually that other time can be spent in much better ways. Yeah, anybody who's basically sat in a traffic jam uh, knows what that's like, that you have the maniac who's <laughs> changing lanes every uh, three seconds. And lo and behold, 20 minutes later, there are five car lengths ahead of you. And you go, for mm -hmm. what? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, applies, it applies in a whole bunch of ways. Chill, yeah. I think, is the, is the, is the shorthand for this. <laughs> Just relax, you know. You'll get there. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of something uh, Chase Jarvis said when he was on the show and he talked about designing designing your own life and you summed it up beautifully there. First work out what you want and then design everything around it. Um, this has been incredible, Mark. Thank you so much for your wisdom. I'm the, like the highs, the lows, the adrenaline that I felt during this interview has been incredible. So thank you so much. Um, could you let our listeners know where they can find out more about you, your podcast and everything, Mark Randolph? Well, certainly the, 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 I, I do want to mention the podcast that that will never work. It's called because the, one of the things that happens on a, a call like this is you ha you unavoidably deal in uh Instagram like sound bites. Do you know? Think less, do more, and everyone goes, "Oh yeah, I could have." But wait, wait, how? You know, collide your idea with reality. Wait, my, I can't. No, which is why on the podcast I am not interviewing celebrity entrepreneurs. I'm not interviewing famous people. I am mentoring real entrepreneurs, real people struggling to take their idea and make it real, or they got a side hustle, they're trying to make it a real business or a real business trying to make it bigger. It's where you can listen as I actually go through the how to some of these concepts. So that's probably the best way to get this. But listen, if you don't have a 30 minute attention span, I do dice it up all nice and shiny into little bits on Twitter, on Instagram, and uh, on TikTok, on pretty much any social media platform you could think of. And you can find all that crap at markrandolph.com. 
which is the website where you can also sign up to get my emails. You can see I, I can't shut up and I'm now not shutting up in a whole bunch of different platforms. Well, the good thing is anyone who heard that has more than a 30 minute attention span because they've made it through this so far. So congratulations on listening to this. Go listen to Mark's podcast because you'll get some great insights there. Well, Adam and David, this has been great. Uh, really, as I, I know we are kids. It's been really spirits. fun. Thank you. 100%. Thank you, mate. Yeah, that was, that was super fun. I really enjoyed that one.